It is good to welcome you here this morning. Thank you for coming out and worshiping with us today. From what I've seen and what I've heard, I think this has been a pretty good winter for putting puzzles together. I know I got a new one for Christmas and my wife put it together. I know others are passing the long winter nights working on puzzles. Most of the ones my wife does are older puzzles, had in the family for years. They're all inevitably missing one piece. I think if you're missing two or more pieces, you must be discarded. But one missing piece seems to uh, be the threshold for keeping a puzzle around. Now, I'm not much of a puzzle person myself. I, I do find myself drawn to puzzles, not necessarily the type on a, on a uh, tabletop. The uh, investigative process, like the one currently underway in Moscow, uh, where the four murders occurred tragically last year, that process seems much like doing a puzzle to me, much like piecing what few bits of evidence you have, piecing those together until you begin to get a picture. Of course, that is on a lot larger scale of life and death. As we move into chapters 11 through 14 of 1 Corinthians, I cannot help but feel as if I am working on a huge puzzle, in some cases with many missing pieces. And when I study all kinds of commentaries and all kinds of analysis, I come to the same conclusion. And there's nothing, there are a lot of things that are not crystal clear. I wish I could sit down and visit with Paul and better understand exactly what he had in mind in these chapters. But I'm going to do the best I can with what we have to work with. And I think we can get a pretty good picture, although there will still, I'm sure, be a few missing pieces. Now, the first part is the most important for us, and it is abundantly clear. But I'll start with 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. Verse 3 will be the one that, that is, will be our focus for today. But verse 2, Paul says, I praise you for remembering me and everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. Holding to the teachings and the customs just as I pass them on to you. So Paul starts this part of the letter off, or he continues this part of the letter uh, on a very positive note. Next week, we skip down to verse 17. This is the beginning of next week. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. That reminds me of some ugly quarterly business meetings that we've had in the past, which is why we quit doing those and, and uh, changed uh, all chairs and all committee meetings. Because some of those meetings did more harm than good. But for this week, for today, Paul is saying, good job. I'm praising you, he says, for a good job on holding on to these customs and these things that I taught you. Kathy said following yesterday's all-church planning that it was the most productive meeting that we have ever had. I thank you and I praise you for that, for participating in, for supporting it, for praying for us. Now we just trust that that's how it will turn out. 
And then Paul jumps right into the, the meat of the subject, right into uh, the matter, this matter of what we'll call headship. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. I want you to realize this, he's saying. I want you to realize what I'm saying. I want you to sit up and listen. I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. Every week I think that that might be the most important thing I've ever heard. And I feel the same way today. This is huge. Paul said, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. Now, whether we want to believe that, whether we want to accept that or not, Paul says, that's the way it is. That's the way it is. Lenski describes headship here. He says, head means to be over another according to an arrangement made by God. In other words, God set this up, and he set it up that the head of every man is Christ. Christ is the head of every man. Every man on this earth is under the many influences. Under the influence of gravity, for one. That's how God designed it. That's how the world is set up. There are laws that govern this world that we live in. One might be gravity. You jump out of an airplane without a parachute at 30,000 feet. It doesn't matter whether you are a Christian or not. It doesn't matter whether you believe or not. It doesn't matter what book you follow or what book you don't follow. You will probably not live long enough to regret your decision or the mistake you've made. Well, as a result of the creation, as a result of the cross and the resurrection, Christ is the head of every man, believe it or not. Greek, Jew, Christian alike, Christ is the head. And someday, whether or not we agree with that, whether or not we agree with that statement, the scripture tells us that someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So man, Christ is your head. Doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. Now the head gives direction. It gathers information. It causes the body to work properly. All the parts to work together. Is it any wonder there is so much confusion so much mental illness and dysfunction in the world around us and among men today. Kamala Harris said this week that the mass killings have got to stop. Well, until man realizes who his head is, where his head is, it will only get worse. The mass shootings are not going to stop because the vice president wants it. We all want it to. But we're, we literally are acting like chickens. Have you ever, have you ever slaughtered chickens? Ever chopped the head off of a chicken and then thrown it out and watched it run around like a chicken with its head cut off? How many of you have seen that? How many of you have been a part of that? Yeah, so that's the thing. That's the thing. And that's literally what we are doing in this world when we do not recognize that Christ is the head. We may as well just be running around like chickens with our head cut off. Christ is ahead of every man. 
That is a principle that cannot be broken or altered. Now I'm going to skip down to the middle or to the end of that verse. I'm going to skip the middle and go to the end of that verse. And Paul writes, and the head of Christ is God. The head of Christ is God. Now I change the order here for effect. The effect I want to get across is this. Even Christ is under headship. Man is under headship. Even Christ is. Ray Stedman says, the head of Christ is God. Paul just said that. Here we have a manifestation of headship demonstrated for us in history. Jesus, the Son of God, equal to the Father in his deity, nevertheless, when he assumes humanity, when we celebrate Christmas, when the Son of God comes into the world, he submits himself to the leadership of the Father. And everywhere Jesus went, he stated this. I always, Jesus said, do the things which please my Father. He says, my meat is to do my Father's will and to please him. I and my Father are one, he says. My Father is greater than I, he says in another place. Now that does not challenge the equality of the members of the Godhead. Three in one. Jesus is just as much God as the Father is. But when Jesus became man, he voluntarily consented to have a lower position than the Father. That is in the sense where he says, my Father is greater than I. Ray Stedman concludes by saying these two headships help us to understand the meaning of the central one. And let's look at that central one. In 11 verse 3, the center part of it, the head of the woman is man. The head of the woman is man. The general statement of the principle of headship has in view men and women in the way they function in society. But it must be remembered that headship never means domination. It is a voluntary commitment carried out in a practice, out of a conviction that God's will is best achieved by this means. It is to be the most, it, this is to be most visible in marriage, where it manifests the role of support which a woman undertakes voluntarily when she marries a man. He is to be leader, and she assumes a support role to help him fulfill the, objective, the objectives of their life together, as Christ, his head, makes clear. Now, if she does not want to do that, she is perfectly free not to undertake that role. No woman should get married if she does not want to. This is a role that she is perfectly free to forego if she chooses. If she wants to give herself to the pursuit of a career for her own objectives, a career, there's not a problem with that, but when it is her own objectives, she has every right to do so. But then she ought not to get married. Because marriage means that she desires to help advance the objectives and the goals of her husband under the headship of Christ. He becomes, therefore, the leader of the two. He says that is the principle of headship. And I think that's probably why a lot of women do not think of getting remarried after they've lost a spouse through perhaps death or loss. 
Many women, I think, probably look at it like, I will let Christ be my head and leave it at that. I don't need to be a man's helpmate. I've raised my children. Thank you very much. But that is headship very clearly. And this is a principle just as relevant as gravity or any of the laws of thermodynamics or any other laws and rules that you want to throw in there. Christ is the head of man. Now, men, that is a huge thing. That means, that means you're responsible to God, not only for you, but for your wife and your family as well. Christ is your head. Man is the head of woman. And God is the head of Christ. Now, the rest of this section, I think, illustrates this. And this is where many will perhaps question and maybe disagree, and maybe it's not crystal clear. But we already have what Paul wanted us to realize, this idea of headship. So the rest... So we go to Roman numeral number three, headship and order is illustrated, number one, in church customs, in the customs of, of the culture in which we live. Now, some want to make this out to be a universal rule, but I do not see it that way at all. Beginning with verse one, every man who prays or prophesies, everybody who's praying or preaching or teaching, with his head covered dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or shaved off, she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head. Now, I think what was going on here is that in that day, the custom of the time, if you will, a married woman wore a veil. Not just a hat, not just a covering, but a veil that covered her head. All you can see was this part of her face, and it draped down over the rest of her clothing. That veil essentially showed the outside world, leave her alone. She's spoken for. It gave her protection and honor and even authority. So men and women, when they prayed, when they prophesied, when they preached or taught, man was not to wear a covering, take your hat off, whatever, show respect for your head, which your head is Jesus Christ, and woman, wear a veil or a covering, honor your head, your husband or your man. The customs of that day required women to wear a veil. If you didn't, if you didn't wear a veil and you were out in public, it would be it could be dangerous for you, but it also would raise suspicion about what you were after and what kind of a person you, you were. Man to pray or prophesy with their heads uncovered. Women with their heads covered. And that is to illustrate what Paul is teaching us about headship here and about submission to one another. Number two. Headship is illustrated, number two, in the image of God. In the image of God. Verse 7, a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God. 
But the woman is the glory of man. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians saying, Who is our crown of rejoicing? Are you not our glory and our joy? So used, this verse tells us that when man was created, he was made to reflect the nature of God. And in that, God takes great delight. He delights in mankind. And this is what the male is to represent, that glory to God. is to be publicly and openly manifest, and that's why the man must not wear a veil. He is not to cover God's creative glory. He is, he is to be unveiled so that the glory of God in creation should be visibly manifest to everyone. He goes on to say, you see this beautifully in the life of Christ. Everywhere he went, he demonstrated the love of God for mankind. But woman is the glory of man. It is the same woman. It is in the woman that the man finds his delight. Headship is illustrated in the image of God and the glory of God as God created man for his glory and woman for man's glory. Number three, in the creation order, verses eight and nine. Man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. I asked the question this week as I delved into this, is man more suited for woman or is woman more suited for man? Or are they equal? Woman, as I read this, woman is created for man. Woman was created for man. God created man and then looked at it and said, it's not good that man should be alone. And so he creates a helpmate. He creates woman. And I am so thankful for that creation. My wife seems to be a perfect suit for me. Perfectly suited for me, my needs, and my desires. I fear I am not as perfectly suited for my wife. I am able to reach things off of the top shelf. And I am able to lift heavy objects. But uh, beyond that, I'm not sure what use I am. Somebody forwarded me an illustration of this this week. Somebody said, I do not know why men go to bars to meet women. Go to Hobby Lobby. The female to male ratio is 10 to 1. And they are already looking for things they don't need. I put myself squarely in that category. In the creation of woman. And finally, number five, in the natural order. Verse 11 through 15. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as women came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is to her glory. Long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. 
Man, if he is lucky, has hair long enough to get a pretty girl to marry him. And then if he's not lucky, the hair falls out. She winds up being married to a fat, bald husband. But on the other hand, the woman is much more likely to retain her hair longer. This is just, it's natural, biological fact. And more beautiful. That's just natural. When I get ready to go in the morning after I shower, I spend about 10 to 12 seconds brushing what's left of my hair. My wife, on the other hand, spends quite a little bit more time. Her hair is much more beautiful. There's much more to work with. Her long hair is a covering. Even if she doesn't wear the veil, it becomes a covering for her. So the answer is, so what? So what of all this stuff? Well, if we came from slime and are slime, this stuff doesn't matter a lick. If we are just dirt, if you kill dirt, it doesn't matter. If you kill slime, it doesn't matter. If that's what we come from, if that's all we are, it doesn't matter. If you kill an unborn or a newborn baby, what difference does it make in the long run? Society will look down upon you, but what difference does it make? A lot. Why? What's that? Oh, okay. We can sure go back to that. And if that is the case, which it is the case, I'm proposing that as the case. If that is the case, in fact, we did come from dirt. But then God breathed into that dirt. He breathed life and a soul, an eternal soul, and a potential for a spiritual relationship with him. He breathed that into that common dirt. And now it's not common any longer. And now the choices that we make here in this life, we're held accountable for it. We're held accountable for it. And the choices we make determine where we spend eternity. Eternity in hell separated from God or eternity in heaven. And if that is the case, then it makes a lot of difference. We have a big gender ID crisis going on in the world today. The world doesn't see it as a crisis. I see it as a crisis. It's a tremendous crisis of identity. Because we do not understand who we are. And we do not follow this stuff. And if we don't follow it, and if it's not true, we may as well jump out of an airplane at 30,000 feet without a parachute. As I looked at this issue of headship, I reflected on the relationship between a player and a coach. The relationship between a player and a coach. Jesus said, I always do what the Father tells me or what he shows me to do. That is a player-coach relationship. When I was in school, I had the privilege of playing for some outstanding coaches. And I would not think of not following them unless I did not respect them. I wound up getting to college, and, and I had coaches that I did not respect, and I did not follow them, and we did not have near the kind of success that I was able to enjoy earlier in my life. At college, I wound up not respecting them. 
when I did respect them, when we had a great relationship, and then even as a coach and the players, in fact, uh, about four or five years ago, we had a 25th year reunion of the winning the boys' state basketball championship. And to be there on the court with these young men that we'd coached, I'd coached 25 years before that, and to have them say how they've taken the, those principles that we taught them there, and they are still applying them to their, to their sons and daughters even today, to see some that were, that were headed for prison wind up being model citizens and to see the kind of effect that, that that headship and that coaching relationship, what kind of difference that made. I listened to and I followed my coach and he was one of the three or four most influential people in my life. Men, Jesus is your coach. Jesus is your coach, like it or not. Are you following his instructions? Are you listening to and seeking him? Men, you are your wife's coach. Are you helping her to reach her full potential? Women, man is your coach. Are you listening and gleaning all you can? As I thought about that coach and player relationship, once again, it is a voluntary relationship. Nobody's making you do it. Nobody's making you do it. It is not a position of dominance. It is a position of mutual respect and of love and of submission. And I would propose one of the things that we are really missing in our world today is this peace, this missing piece of headship and what that means in each of our relationships and each of our lives every day. Let's pray. Father, there are some difficult things here to, uh, to understand the covering, the not covering, the angels watching our worship. and, and uh, But thank, Father, there's some things very, very clear. Very clear. Thank you for your reminder today. Thank you for your word, for this glorious world that you have built and created for us. Father, I would propose that probably all of our problems come as a result of us not listening to you, not following you, not realizing that you are the head, that you are the head of the man, and the man not realizing what that means, and that that means also that he is the head of the woman. Father, forgive us for how we've gotten things mixed up, for how we have, in our own homes, in our own church, in our own community, have, have given up some of these principles and some of these rules that you have uh, 
that you've laid out before us. Father, help us to have a clear understanding of headship and our responsibility to play the role that you've given us. Thank you again for this reminder. We love you and we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being here this morning. You have a wonderful afternoon.